This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. One of the best parts of my job is talking to some amazing people, especially people I admire greatly. I recently got to sit down and talk with Dan Rather, the legendary journalist, and we talked about everything from education to race in America to his middle American upbringing in the heartland and how we can move together and forward as a nation. It was an inspiring conversation. I hope you enjoy it. It's coming up next, but first let me tell you about Quip Toothbrush. Quip, the best toothbrush in the world. It will put a smile on people's faces, especially during this holiday season. It is a good gift. Actually, it's a perfect gift, thoughtful gift, and it comes right now with a toothbrush the refillable floss, and toothpaste, all intentionally designed to make good habits simple. The Quip Electric Toothbrush has sensitive sonic vibrations and a timer with 30-second pulses to guide your routine. And the Quip Floss Dispenser has pre-marked strings so you always use the right amount. Plus, Quip delivers the brush heads. The floss, the toothpaste refills every three months, and you can join three million happy customers, including me, by going to getquip.com slash kh right now. Go to getquip, G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash kh, and you get the free refill and the whole plan for free. Go to getquip.com slash kh. And while you're getting your good brushing habits down with the Quip toothbrush, go over to Power Swabs and get those teeth white. When's the last time you whiten your teeth? Well, you can have fun doing that. Listen, you go to the dentist and they got all of these trays and things and things over the counter, horrible. Some of them hurt your gums. Well, this holiday season, you can go to these uh, office parties and not have discolored coffee-stained teeth, or in my case, the tea-stained teeth. Not this year. Go to Power Swabs. Get you a fresh box of Power Swabs. You never really whiten your teeth until you've whitened it with Power Swabs. They're clinically proven to whiten an average of two shades in the first five minutes. The first five minutes. And Power Swabs never leave your teeth and gums sore and sensitive like the other whitening treatments. And it's totally safe and effective on all dental work. So if you're not happy, Power Swabs will even give you your money back. There's a 30-day money-back guarantee. So you need to try Power Swabs, and you will not believe how much whiter your teeth will be in just five minutes. We got a great deal for you as well. Go to buypowerswabs.com, use my code Karen, and you get 40% off plus an additional $10 off on top of that, plus a free quick stick. Yep, that's right, 40% off, $10 off, plus a free quick stick, and you can get that at buypowerswabs.com, use code Karen, or you can call them, 800-668-1749, use my code Karen. That's 800-668-1749, code Karen. Buypowerswabs.com today. Bad mic, bad grammar. Yes, not you. You never all G's and yes. I got caught the other day. Did you? Well, I did. I I know better, and don't. I I started the sentence by saying, "Me and Gene did something." Did you? And And in the back of your mind, you heard one of your English teachers. Right away, the red lights went off. I was, "Come on." Come on, Gene. Get with the program. (laughs) But you know what? As you talk about education in your book, um, we are evolving. Words are making it into the lexicon every single day. Things that I never thought, you know, I'm like, that's not a word. And now it's in the dictionary and how we communicate with the truncated way. Well, it's one of the good things about English is not everything is good about English. But one of the good things about English, there is a word for almost everything. 
And as times change, new words come into the lexicon and get into the dictionary. So it's a real living language, whereas French, I don't speak French. My wife does. But French is much more limiting. Yes. It has a much smaller vocabulary. It's a beautiful language, but it doesn't evolve the way English does. No, and Latin, which I study, is dead. So there's that. Yeah. Uh, let's jump into it. Uh, welcome to the hottest show in the galaxy. It's the Karen Hunter Show. We're here on Sirius XM Urban View Channel 126. We're talking powers and becomes action. And this man has been empowering people with his journalism for longer than I've been alive. And I've watched his trajectory, which I think impacts America. And now he's got a book. It's in paperback now. What Unites Us? Reflections on Patriotism. Let me welcome with a great honor, Mr. Dan Rather. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be here with you. What a joy. Man, it is. Um, so my dad made me watch Walter Cronkite. I tell the story a lot because it was scarring a little bit, you know, as a kid. Six o'clock, Channel 2 in New York City, in the New York City tri-state area, CBS. I had to park my hind parts in front of the television to watch. And that's the way it was, you know. Well, and God I, rest your father's soul. Yeah, yeah. And as I'm reading your book, you know, there's some parallels. You you talk about uh, traveling down south. And my dad also was one of eight, and he would talk about his father piling all the kids up in the car and traveling down south. Now, I'm sure while you couldn't sleep in hotels and you were talking about sleeping in the car, he, he also did that as a kid. And I was like, wow, you know, even though there were two Americas at the time, People were living parallel existences and parallel lives. Well, that's true. And it's part of the story of the country, isn't it? That, uh, you know, I was raised in Texas, which had uh, through all through my youth and into my early adulthood had institutionalized racism. As a result of that, when I first started covering Dr. Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement in the early 1960s, it was a revelation to me. You can say, well, wait a minute. On the one hand, you said you were raised in an era of institutionalized racism in Texas, and that's true. I don't have an explanation for it. I have no excuses for it. But when I started covering Dr. King, the, the violence really set me back mentally. I had not seen that kind of racial violence. I'm not saying it didn't exist in Texas. I'm saying I hadn't seen it. But anyway, in short, covering Dr. King during 1962, 1963, in the more or less early stages of what's become known as the Civil Rights Movement, changed me as a person Mm. and as a professional. It had a profound effect on me that period. And when you say we, I love the story of your father saying, and they all piled in the car and took the, and that we traveled in parallel uh, universes. That's true, but only up to a point. Yeah. There's no question that it was much, much tougher for anyone of African heritage traveling in the Deep South than it was even for those of us who were reporters. We had our difficult days, but I'm not equating it because oh. I think one of the things people don't understand about the uh, civil rights movement is that, you know, Dr. King gets a lot of credit, and I'm among those who give him, he deserves all the credit he gets. But the heart of the movement actually were people. Oh. Rank and file, I don't think there's any such thing Police as an ordinary and, person. Yeah. But the men, women, and children who, against all odds, engaged in nonviolent protest with a red-beating heart of the movement. But it couldn't have worked. It couldn't have broken, and it hasn't clearly broken 
racism, if not for white people like Viola Luosa and Schwerner and, and Goodman getting off of their couches, seeing the horrors that you witnessed and in their souls couldn't take it. Because the problem with America is that we live in our shtetls, our shtetls. We live in our little pockets of homogeny, right, for the most part. And so you don't get to see how other people are living and you don't get to see who other people are. And as a result, it's easy to marginalize and it's easy to demonize, right? It's easy to take the propaganda and, and wear it. Which is one reason I wanted to write What Unites Us. One reason I wrote this book, What Unites Us, is that very thing. That we go deeper and deeper in the direction of tribalism. We want to stay within our own tribe, racial, religious, ethnic background, or what have you. And frank, quite frankly, I'm worried that we've lost the ability to listen to one another. It's one thing to hear one another. It's quite another thing to listen. In particular, these days, who do you know is a Trump supporter says, I don't want to listen to anybody who doesn't support him. And people who are opposed to, to Trump say, listen, you know, I don't understand anybody supporting Trump. I can't listen. We've got to listen to one another. It doesn't mean we have to agree to one with one another. It doesn't mean we give up our ideals, but we have to start listening to one another. Hey, this is Karen Hunter. With the holidays just around the corner, now is the perfect time to order holiday cards for family and friends. And this year, create custom holiday cards quickly, easily, and affordably at simplytoimpress.com. SimplyToImpress.com is your holiday photo card headquarters with thousands of unique designs to choose from. All you have to do is upload your family photos, or you can even get them from Instagram, personalize the text, and you're done. It's that easy. SimplyToImpress.com, print your cards professionally on your choice of premium card stock in just a few days and then rushes them straight to your door. The New York Times wire cutter named Simply to Impress their favorite holiday card service. Simply to Impress even offers foil cards and hundreds of great holiday card designs just for your business as well. So place your order today to save 30% and get free shipping. Just enter promo code DEAL at checkout. Save big on holiday photo cards today using promo code DEAL at simplytoimpress.com. That's simplytoimpress.com. So we're talking with Dan Rather. I can't believe I am so honored to do that. Um, is there a due north? Right. So, you know, the listening to both sides, the validity of both sides, I think personally there's a danger because it negates that there is a right and wrong oh no no question about it that and you can't we can't engage into false equivalency no no it's not an argument that every it's just what i'm really preaching is kind of a gospel of empathy empathy is you don't have to agree with the other person in fact it's important you don't agree if you don't agree that you don't begin to make compromises with your conscience but when i say listen Listen for the common ground. You know, I'm a great believer. You walk into a room with somebody, you say, listen, you and I may disagree about a hundred things. Can we put those aside? Can we find one thing or two things on which we can find common ground and start to build from there? A specific example, and I think I mentioned it at least one place in the book, that in a local community where people are at odds with one another and are in their individual silos, memberships of a tribe, such things as if the Little League baseball field needs repairing, can we get together and do that? And I'm a great believer if you do that, the first thing you know, you're just working on the field or the girls' soccer field or 
maybe the school ground, whatever. Then you begin talking to one another and you find, you know, I disagree with this other person. I think it's really important you stick to your own beliefs and your own conscience. But to find some way to reach common ground with the other person. Otherwise, we just get deeper and deeper into our tribalism. And one of the things I try to make clear in what unites us, the book, is the dangers of tribalism. That we're in a period in which authoritarian regimes are on the rise, including in our own country. And authoritarianism, we know from history, can very quickly lead to extreme nationalism. And extreme nationalism, which is different from patriotism, Mm -hmm. can lead to tribalism. In our country, if we ever descend completely into tribalism and saying, I don't want to talk to anybody who's of different color or different political belief or different religion, then we're finished as a country as we know it. Uh, what what unites us is the book, and you write about this trip that I was uh, mentioning uh, to the beach with your family. And right after that, World War II happens. And you talk about a, an America which was very much divided coming together and that Germany and Japan thought we were vulnerable because the crash happened and we were going through these tumultuous times and they thought we were vulnerable, but that very vulnerability brought us together in a way that they weren't. Is it possible, Dan, rather, that those times are gone, that there is nothing that can galvanize this nation? Because I feel like we're in a particular time where we have outside attacks. And instead of coming together as a nation against a force outside of our nation, we are rolling into our differences and we are more divided than we've ever been. Under attack. Well, we certainly are under attack. I would question whether we're more divided than we've ever been. I'm keeping in mind we had a great civil war in the middle of the 19th century in which we killed 700,000 of one another, including many people of color. Uh, We went through a very divisive period in the 1960s. But in answer to your question, look, number one, I certainly agree this is a perilous time for the country. Number two, at this moment, it doesn't look all that promising, but I remind you that it took a long time in World War II. I'm glad you mentioned that it is true that Germany and Japan thought because of the Great Depression and the Wall Street crash that we were in a weak and vulnerable position. It took a long time for the country to come together for what we accomplished in World War II, a great two-ocean war which nobody thought we could win, uh, nobody except ourselves. But I've not lost faith in the country. I do agree. I admit it. I'm an optimist by experience and by nature. But that doesn't mean a kind of fuzzy-headed, well, everything's going to be all right. I do think we can get through this dark, stark, dangerous period if we hold together within ourselves, stand for what we believe in, and find common ground with other people. We agree about a lot. We disagree about a lot. And I'm not underestimating the danger of this present period at all. We are under attack from the outside. There are are foreign forces, not just the Russian and the Chinese, but there are other forces that seek to undo us. We're being tested as we were in the 60s, as we were in World War II, as we were during the Civil War, as we have been time and again. We're being tested in a kind of what I call fuzzy-headed optimism is not going to help us. What the kind of optimism I have in mind, optimism and idealism, together with action. Look, if if we don't get ourselves together, 
then I do think we're finished. But this has been true. Each generation has to face this on its own. I don't want anybody to think I'm preaching. I try very hard not to preach in what unites us. I don't have all the answers. But what I do think is we need to start a conversation. And for example, what is patriotism? I find it. What is patriotism? Well, patriotism that. is love of country, but with humility. Nationalism is a certain kind of arrogance, particularly extreme nationalism. Nationalism is. We're better than anybody else at almost everything, and you better believe it, and I'm not entertaining your thoughts of country. Patriotism is one love you, you love the country, and you are literally prepared to give up your life for the country. But you say to yourself, we can learn from other people, and we're not perfect. We're, we're moving toward our polar star. It's the unreachable star. We're never going to be perfect. But we're always striving for a more perfect union. So nationalism embodies a certain humility that is not there with nationalism. And I think it's important people understand the difference between nationalism and patriotism because a lot of people want to convince you that nationalism is patriotism. I get that. But how do you love a country that has never loved you? Well, I'm not sure I'm in a position to to answer that because I, I I try to walk in other people's shoes. But for anybody who feels that way, I've never felt that way. But I'm privileged, and I, re- I recognize that. You know. But for someone who feels that, I'm not sure you can ever convince them that they should. But I'd like to try. And I'd like to say, whatever has convinced you that you're not loved, maybe in the future we can find some common ground where that begins to change. But we, we're not, we, don't, we won't even have the hope of doing that if we don't find some way to work together, you feeling, I'm not saying you personally, but... Oh, it the, is the personal. Feel. Uh, but, but I, you know, uh, you work, You, I keep saying you build the country, you build the life that you want to live in. You build the country you want to live in. I like So that. I'm not going to sit on the sidelines and complain about this. I'm going to build the world that I want to see. That said, the reality is I'm doing the 1619 Project, the New York Times, yeah. uh, wonderful piece. And I'm wonderful project. Their, their, their podcast, and they talk about, you know, the very thing that we're saying, you know, that this nation with its laws, inculcated within the laws, was a denigration of people who look like me. Mm-hmm. And so people fought in wars to liberate folk to come home to drink from colors only water fountains and sit at the back of the bus. Right. So it's hard to to have a na- a narrative around this. And in your book, and I want to get to the education system when we aren't even taught the true history of this nation and all of the things that went into making it great. Right? Mm-hmm. You talk about education. You talk about Finland and you talk about Singapore being two of the most incredible education systems, polar opposites in their method, but they have a couple of things in common. Can we blow up this education system in America, which is not educating our, our kids at all? My answer is yes, we can. The question is, will we? And will we do it fast enough? Look, the education system, which was the pride of the country uh, from mid, certainly late 19th century on through World War II, one can argue whether it should have been or not, but part of the pride. But there's no question, and, and this is one of the things I try to spend some time working on. Look, I'm a, I'm a product of public schools. Uh, never saw the inside of anything other than a public school, including college. I went to a small teacher's college, which is a public college. But particularly our public school system, even the school system we have, which is inadequate as it stands, is under attack. The public school system 
under attack by people who want the best of education to be only for the elite and privileged in the country. Now, this, you may say, is a far cry from what you're talking about, well, how we deal with our history. But I will say this. I can make an argument you may or may not disagree, that in small incremental steps, we have been getting better. But the pace is far too slow. For example, the New York Times, which I think I could recommend, but I wish it would be taught in every school system. Why isn't it? And it should be taught in every school system. Well, it isn't because you and I don't work hard enough to make it happen. So who who's responsible? Because at every turn, you got to have somebody. You know, um, I don't want to put everything at the feet of the government. You know, the federal government. I think all politics is local. So we, you know, we really have to do the work within our own again communities to to build the kind of world we want to see. But there should be some things that we all agree on. You know, in terms of how we educate and how we give people opportunities. You talk a lot about equality. I like to talk about equity because right. you can't tell me that I'm equal because I am. I was born that way. So yeah. there's no equality discussion. Well, all right, let's talk about equity then. Yes. I'm prepared to do that. Well, on the education system, and I think this is one of the things that unites us, which is to say, I think one of the things that unites us that this overwhelming majority opinion, it's more than consensus, overwhelming majority opinion, that we want the best schools we can possibly turn out. But there's an agreement. Now, where the disagreement comes is what, what, does that, what does that mean exactly? Let's get down to cases. What's going to be taught? How is it going to be taught? But we all agree that we want the best schools, we want the best education we can for the most people. There's general agreement with that. How we get that is what we but, but that's exactly the kind of thing that unites us. I say, okay, let's agree. We want the best schools we can possibly have for our young people. Now let you and I get down to cases and be honest with one another what you think is necessary to do that. Right. That one of the things, and I did, I'm glad you mentioned Finland and Singapore, but let's keep both of whom have tremendous school systems, terrific school systems. They're not perfect, but they're, frankly, they're a hell of a lot they're better than most of what we right. have here. But we have to keep in mind that. Number one, both of these are smaller countries. Each, uh, in Finland's case, they have a much more homogeneous population yes. in terms of race, ethnicity, mm-hmm. and religion. But uh, I refuse to believe that in this broad and deep country, with all of the advantages we have, that we can't have a school system, an overall public school system, this as good as Finland or Singapore. I, I, it, it just inconceivable to me. But we have to get busy with it. Now, your question, well, who's responsible for this? And I, like you, I don't like to say, well, the government is the whole thing. But each and every one of us, so every person who complains about the school system, I like to say, well, what are you doing about it? You know, are you active in local PTA? Are you at the school? I find particularly with politicians, so many politicians want to talk about what needs to be done with the schools. And you say, well, excuse me, when's the last time you were actually in a school? And you'd be surprised how few of them have been in any school for 10 or 12, 12, 15 years. Tell me about Dan Rather Sr. and what he taught you, the ditch digger, uh, strong man that raised you. Tell me about him. Well, my father worked all, nearly all of his life with his back in his hands. He was basically a laborer uh, that he came of adult age during the Depression when there weren't many jobs. Uh, but look, he was he was not perfect. Uh, but uh, 
among the things he he tried to teach myself, I'm the eldest of three. I have a brother who's six years younger and my sister's eight years younger, uh, was the value of work and to take pride in your work. That was one thing. Persistence was another. He preached from the gospel with persistence all the time. Just show up and don't quit. Uh, but beyond that, and he certainly was not any civil rights hero, and I don't seek to make him out such. He came from a, a system of institutionalized racism, and he had his problems raised. But I will say this. World War II changed him to a very large degree, and in the consequence, changed our family and, and changed su- succeeding generations in the sense that when the members of our community, and I won't go into great detail, but we lived in a segregated community, but the African-American community was butted up against our little neighborhood. When the Americans of African heritage came back from the war, my father was really appreciative of what they had done. And he also was aware of the difficulties they'd had. And so he wasn't in the streets protesting racial segregation. But, and I recount this in what unites us, at the little local civic club, when the African-American veterans showed up to vote for the first time, and there was an effort to exclude them, then, you know, his great phrase, which I'll never forget it, was he whispered to me, I was a child, he had told me, when they stand, we stand. I never forgot it. Um, but, you know, he was a good example. He, he wasn't perfect. He didn't pretend to be perfect. He did the best he could, which under the circumstances were pretty good. But he instilled in you a level of humanity that allowed you, when you got out there, to report. Because reporters have to build this wall to actually have empathy, to actually see people, to tell stories that no one else could tell because you actually had something in you that allowed you to see. Well, a lot of that came from my mother and and father. No question about that. All right. So a couple things. As we... Uh, wind down. I, I just Walter Cronkite again is he's part of my and I'm sure. What right. tell me something you learned from him that no one knows? Well, one of the things that no one knows, you know, Walter Cronkite has been and rightly so well publicized, the legend, the icon. But Walter loved to dance, and he was a pretty good dancer. He may not have been quite as good a dancer as he thought he was. But he was a pretty good dancer. What was he dancing to? He would dance to almost anything. He'd dance the Watusi. He'd dance the waltz. He'd dance the boogaloo. He'd dance dances he made up himself. But, you know, Walter Cronkite, who on the air and rightly so, iconic figure, yes. all straight and stiff, to see him on the dance floor, I learned, in that sense, I learned from him the value of letting go. Mm. You have to sometimes let go. Can you dance, Dan Rather? Not particularly well. Okay. I can do the old Sanchez Center Junior High, uh, Junior College two step. Okay. That's and, funny, you know. Is it on beat though? Are you? Uh, do you have? Rhythm? I can. I can. I can sometimes stay on beat. Okay. All right. <laughs> Last question, because um, this has been following you. This this frequency thing. I just I need to understand it because I remember it being a big big deal back in the day. It doesn't matter now. Well, it's it doesn't matter. It's such a long story. But one reason it REM recorded a song. What's yes, the and it became well, a hit. I was at, I was attacked uh, in 
uh, at night on Park Avenue by someone who sucker punched me. I made the mistake to turn my back on him, and the person fled. And a lot of people extrapolated from that REM thing was it was a kind of crazy urban violence, which was too prevalent in the 1980s. For other people, it was another story. It turned out that the person who attacked me there later came to the Today Show and shot dead a security guard at the Today Show. Uh, he was a person who heard voices, and he thought people on television were trying to control his life. But this wasn't revealed until he actually killed somebody. He didn't kill me. Thank he, God. He, uh, but it, it kind of went into the popular lexicon, if you will, what's the frequency criticism? Because that's what he said to me. It didn't make any sense until later after he killed somebody at the Today Show. Something. The frequency, he was hearing frequency. But it's a long story from a long time ago. And, you know, when you're in the public eye, some stories become sort of street, Urban legends. Yeah. Urban legends. And that became one. Okay. And finally, I said that was my that was my penultimate penultimate <laughs> question. Now it's my final. Your health regimen at eighty eight, sharp as a whip. You look good. Thank what you. What are you doing, sir, to stay active, healthy? Well, uh, some on, on my best days, I, I, I you know I, right. I, I I try to walk and I I do try to exercise and I try to watch my diet and all those things. But, you know, most of that is because of God's grace, uh, that you can help yourself by exercise and diet. That's true. And also think working. You know, I like to work. It's one of the things I got from my father. I like to work, and I like this work. I have a passion for this work. And I do think that the blessing of my health is at least in part directly related to I keep working. I just keep on keeping on. I love it. And what unites us, brilliant book, um, more important, it will touch your soul, and that's important. I was uh, I saw a sign the other day, too many humans, not enough souls. I love that. Yeah, and so we need that, <laughs> Dan Rather, because you're a special soul. I don't know why you're on Radio Andy, but I love Radio Andy, and I think it's actually really <laughs> dope that you're on a channel that has so many entertainment focuses that we have Dan Rather, a national treasure, on Radio Andy. Well, Shout I'm Andy's Andy indulgence. Huh? That's it? Huh? What? Let me find out. All right. Well, thank you for being here. I appreciate you. Thank you for having me. I'd love you. to come back sometime. Oh, it, it, open seat. Dan Rather can co-host the Karen at the show any day. Actually, you can fill in for me. All right, y'all.